Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue with our next section in this book. Moving quickly toward the end, but uh, it'll take us a while to get there. I have a feeling when we get into the Hall of Fame of Faith or whatever it's called in chapter 11, we'll spend some time looking at those men and women who trusted God in very difficult situations, very unusual situations. But we come today to perhaps one of the most difficult passages in the book of Hebrews. Now, not difficult because it's hard to interpret or hard to read or hard to understand what the writer is saying, but difficult because it is such a strong, stern, clear warning. And it's for every one of us. Now, I wanted to start the service off today, and I had Brother Todd read from Jesus' words in John chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 10. 6 says basically the same thing. But in John chapter 10, uh, the words of Jesus about him being the shepherd, the good shepherd, the door of the sheep, him being the one who keeps them, that if we're in him, in his hands, nothing, no one, no way ever can snatch us out of his hands, that we are secure in Christ, that if we are in Christ Jesus, there is no need to worry, there's no need to fear. We are his, and we're not dependent upon ourselves to stay his, but he keeps us his. He is our protector. He is our savior, our redeemer, our protector, our sustainer. He's everything to us. And I mean, he works that out in a glorious way throughout this life. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't have struggles. Doesn't even mean we won't have doubts. Doesn't even mean that we won't, to use the old southern term, and I guess it's popular other places, but doesn't mean we won't backslide and find ourselves sometimes looking as though maybe we have totally lost it all. But the key is, and we'll talk about this in this passage, if we have backslidden and we are in Christ, Christ will not let us rest until we are brought back into relationship and fellowship with him and with his body. Listen to these words from, John, uh, from Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting everything. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. The writer says, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of God. And a terrifying passage from God's word. I know that most of us have heard about, if we've not actually read, uh, uh, but about an early American preacher who pastored and preached on the American soil before we were even a nation by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Many of you have read his, well, you've probably not read a lot of his works, but you've probably read one of his works. And that is a sermon that he preached entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And typically, that is taught as being an unbelievably fundamentally manipulative message that he worked himself into a frenzy that he worked himself up in order to scare the people and that somehow Edwards derived some kind of sadistic glee to the bewilderment bewilderment of his congregation that that he was sadistic and he enjoyed just saying ah and God works like a, a, a spider dangling by a thin thread over the fire and people say oh see what a horrible person it was. Quite honestly, Edwards preached that sermon with some great trepidation and a desire not to have to preach it. But he preached it because he loved his congregation. He preached it because there was a lot of false teaching going on about the mercy of God and the grace of God and how God would somehow in the end just say, oh, don't worry about it. It's all right. Much more like a country song than like biblical truth. Truth of the matter is, as a matter of historical fact, that Edwards didn't try, I've probably been more animated right now in the first five minutes of this message than Edwards ever was in preaching that or any other sermon. It's a historical fact that he wrote out that sermon on on small pieces of paper as he did most of his sermons and stood there and read them like this in a very clear and monotone voice. But he knew it was truth. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here could very well have been, it was not, but it could have very well been Edward's text for sinners in the hands of an angry God because he's talking here about a God who is holy and a God who will not take his son being trampled under uh, and he will underfoot and he will not he will not endure with people who say they believe one thing and yet go and do something absolutely contrary to that. Most people today, I realize, don't like the subject matter of today's text. In fact, most people in our country today, and and sadly, most people in our churches, they understand it, people that are out there just in the world, but people in our churches today are really quite like the ones Paul spoke of in 2 Timothy 4.3. When Paul said, for a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. We live in a day that says, look, just tickle my ears. Just make me feel good. Just make me happy. And tell me how much God wants me to be happy rather than how much God wants me to be holy. And the truth of the matter is, your happiness is probably not of a whole lot of God's concern. Your holiness really is. 
Because holiness will bring about joy, and joy will be much deeper and much more meaningful than happiness ever could be. And so the writer here is saying, listen, there is a danger of coming to a point of saying, oh, I believe the gospel, I've heard the gospel, I know the gospel, I know all the, the knowledge there is to have, and yet still finding ourselves in a, in a position that is not in Christ. You see, that's what he's saying here. He said, if we go on sinning willfully, he's not talking about here uh, sins of, of, uh, of sort of a stumbling into. He's not talking about here sins that are, are, are unintentional sins that we all have every day of some sort or another. But he's talking about here one who says, I have the knowledge. I've received the knowledge of truth. I know the gospel. I even believe the gospel is true. And yet they go on sinning willfully. The idea there, the word willfully is... is deliberate intention, that is habitual in what I'm doing. I know what's right. I know what the gospel says. I know what God's word says, but you know, that's, that's not my concern. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go on sinning willfully in contrast to the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel. Then the writer here says, for that person, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. That is, the sacrifice of Christ that covers sins of believers is not in effect in that person's life. Now, you know people, and I know people, and we could go down a list of people who at, at one time were in the church, and, and now they're out of the church, who one time professed Christ, and even looked like very involved, very active believers, and yet they abdicated that, they left, they denied that, they went away from it, and, and all in all, they've just turned their back on Christ altogether. And we know some who have done that and, and lived for a time in sin and then have repented and come back and been restored, showing that probably the Spirit of God was so working, making them so miserable and, and working their life in such a way that they could not be satisfied in that lifestyle, indicating they really do belong to Christ. But there are others who looked like they were a part of the body, looked like they were in Christ, looked like everything was great, they said all the right words, they, they, they were baptized, they went through all the right motions, but yet later in life they turned their back on us. John had the, the answer to that. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, he said, listen, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. Truth of the matter is, there's going to be a lot of people who come and say, oh, the gospel, that's great. I, I love what the gospel says. I, 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 I identify with that. I, I intellectually, with knowledge, agree with that. But no greater passage of scripture is there in all the Bible to show that knowledge does not save a person. I had a pagan professor in college who could quote the Bible and tell me more that was in the Bible than I ever thought I would know. And he always used it against me in some way or another. But, but you know, the truth of the matter is, knowledge does not save. Now, knowledge is necessary. Knowledge is important. Knowledge is a part of our spiritual growth and a part of our understanding. But knowledge does not save. The demons have knowledge. 
James even talked about that, if you remember. The demons say, uh, James said, listen, the demons in hell, they believe in God. They believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They believe that the gospel is true, and because of that, they shudder, they tremble. But it does them no good. Their knowledge does not save them. Their knowledge just condemns them even greater. And, and the writer here is saying, listen, there are, there are people who, who know a lot, who know what the gospel says, who knows what the truth is. There is a knowledge there, a, a fairly sophisticated knowledge in some cases, but yet they, in their lifestyle, in their way of life, they go on sinning willfully. They just have become what, what some would call, to use the theological terms, antinomians. Yes, I know that's not right, but I want to do it anyway. They're driven by their desires. They're driven by their passions. They're, they're driven by their nature that has not been converted by the internal dwelling of the Spirit of God. They're trying to live on knowledge, but they're not converted by God's Spirit. A good definition of apostasy is found right here in, in verse 26 where it talks about one who has received knowledge of the truth, the gospel, but willfully remain in sin. Apostate has seen and heard the truth. He knows it well, but he willfully turns his back on it. He willfully lives in a, in, in a way that is contrary to it. Willfully, deliberately, habitually even. The word willful there carries with it the idea of deliberate intention, habitual, as I've already said. And, and, and the reference here is not to sins of ignorance or sins of weakness, but to those that are planned out, those that are determined, those that are done with forethought and intentionality. And what he's saying here is there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no sacrifice for those sins because they are carried out in a way that you may know something, but you've not really experienced that truth by the power of God's Holy Spirit, by the power of Christ, changing your life into what you ought to be, what he desires you to be, what he will make you if you are in him. Yes, a believer may lapse into sin. There, there's no way to deny that. A, a believer may lapse into sin. He may stray from intimacy with the Lord and, and with the Lord's people. But unless the Lord disciplines him in such a way as to take him on out of the world and take him home to be with him, that person will come back. He'll be under too much conviction to stay away permanently. In the meanwhile, he's robbed of joy and peace and, and many other blessings that come from walking in the truth of God Almighty. Well, what causes apostasy? I mean, what causes a person to come and, and say, I'm a part of the body of Christ, I've, I've come to know Christ, and yet somehow to fall away? Well, the scripture gives us at least six different things that will sometimes cause apostasy of those who have been a part of the body. First thing is found in Matthew verse, uh, chapter 24, verses 9 and 10. If you want to turn back with me to Matthew's gospel there, a, a tremendous, that whole chapter is our Lord preparing his disciples for that which is to come. And when I say his disciples, I don't mean just those 
uh, 12 that were with him there and the 11 that endured to the end with him, but I mean all disciples that followed after them. But, uh, chapter 24 is, is where Christ is talking about his return and some of those signs and, and what's going to take place. And in, in Matthew 24, verses 9, uh, 9 and 10, he talks about persecution. He said, then they will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and will hate one another. One of the reasons for apostasy is persecution. That's some of what the church at, uh, that, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to is dealing with. They are being persecuted because they've left Judaism. They are Jewish believers who have moved into faith in Christ. And so many people are persecuting them. They're, they're calling them names. They're accusing them of, of, of denying the law of Moses. They're accusing them of, of turning from the truth into a lie, moving into a cult by coming to Christ. I mean, all sorts of persecution took place verbally, but they were also being fired from their jobs. Their families were throwing them out. Some of them in that day were even going to death because of their faith in Christ. Persecution is a rough thing for people who are not really and truly in Christ. Now, I, I got to tell you right here, this is my reason for, you know, I, I reject a, a real popular thing in American Christianity. It's not in any, many other places, but in America, there's this idea that, hey, don't worry about it. We're not going to be around for the tribulation. Jesus didn't believe that or I should say Jesus, knew that we would be around. And he said, listen, you're going to have great persecution. You're going to have great tribulation. They're going to deliver you over. They're going to kill you. They'll, you'll be hated by the nations because of my name. And some of you, <coughs> because you only have a knowledge, you only have a knowledge, you don't have a, a, a new birth, a new life, some of you are going to deny my name because of that, you're going to fall away. You're going to betray one another. You're going to hate one another. I mean, what would the church in America look like if we were having to go through the things that the church in China is going through today? Or the church in North Korea? What would it be like if we really were forbidden from meeting here unless we were, quote, approved by the state? You know, that, that the state would say, okay, you can be a church because you won't really preach the word. You'll just say what the government wants you to say. If it came to that in America, and I know you're sitting there saying, well, I'd never come to that in America. Don't be so sure. If it came to that in America, how many people who sit in the pews every week would say, you know, I like this gospel thing, but this is too tough. I like Jesus. He's a nice guy. But <laughs> they might kill me if I say I believe in him. They might kill me if I go to a, a church that is not approved by the authorities. I mean, what, what, would the, what would happen to the church in America if that were to take place? I dare say many of the churches in America would be emptied or be transformed into state churches that would say, okay, we'll say what you want us to say, and everybody stay happy. But they would deny the very truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They might say they still believe it, but they deny it by their life. And they would go on sinning willfully, 
denying the Christ who bought them. The Christ who died for them. The, the Christ who gave his life that men might be saved. There's a second thing, and that is false teachers. And Jesus goes on right here and continues to talk about that. Many, many false teachers will arise in verse 11. Many false teachers will arise and will mislead many. Will mislead many. Will we'll, we'll, we'll tell them enticing things, tickling their ears and drawing them away from the truth of God. We have false teachers in our country today. We have false teachers that are preaching a false gospel. A gospel that says, hey, just think positive, man. Have a happy thought. You know, it's just a matter of uh, you got to be positive. You got to be, you got to put aside all negativity and, and, and just think positively and, and you'll be happy in God. And that's their way of salvation. And many people follow because that's very, very popular. I mean, the gospel says come and die. The, the gospel says come and, and, and die to self and live to Christ's glory, live to the glory of God. There are many people today who really don't like that message because they don't want to die to themselves. They want what they want and they want to add Jesus on. But there's no real, no real change of heart and life and glory. False teachers. Temptation. Temptation can cause apostasy. If you look in 2 Timothy chapter 4, just listen to this, you don't have time to turn there right now, but in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10, Paul is bringing that letter to an end and he, and he says, listen, for Demas, who had been with me, who had discipled alongside of me, who had been a part of the body, who, who looked to be every much a Christian as anybody else, but, but Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You know, we can speculate all day long on what Paul means by Demas, having loved this present world, what that means. But... At its very core, it must mean that he was tempted, he was drawn by, by worldly things that negated his commitment to Christ. He loved the world more than he loved Christ. He, he loved the, the, the pleasures of this life more than the glory of life with Christ. I mean, it, it's, a, it's an obvious thing that temptation into sin can cause us to fall into apostasy. That's what Paul says Jesus made that clear by false teachers and other things and by persecution. Neglect. Neglect can also be a cause of apostasy. Uh, Paul talked about, oh, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews talked about that in this particular book. Hebrews chapter 2, way back then, months and months ago, uh, the writer said, listen, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, I believe in Jesus, I trust Jesus, but it's a matter of concentrating, focusing, meditating on him and his word and growing and, and being fed by the Holy Spirit and being fed by the word of God. And if we neglect that, we become very quickly susceptible to all these other things. I, I think another source of apostasy is holding on to the old. 
whether it's the old religion, as in the case of the Hebrews, they were, they were tempted to hold on to Judaism because that was kind of where they'd been and, and there was a real temptation to go back to, we talked about that, the, the physical sacrifices that they could see and they didn't see every single Lord's Day the sacrifice of Christ having been once and for all for them. They were, they were holding on to the old religion, but it could be holding on just to the old lifestyle. It could be holding on just to that which, which enticed us from the past and never letting go to say, Christ, that is yours. Take it away. Deal with it. I can't. Holding to the old rather than the new in Christ can be a source of apostasy. And then there's a final one I want to give you. In that We looked at that a couple of weeks in this chapter, in this same chapter, just back in verse 25, when, when the, the forsaking of Christian fellowship can lead to apostasy. You know, when, when, when the writer said, for not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, as persecution and as false teachers and as temptation and as neglect and as uh, holding the old all are temptations for us it's that coming together and not forsaking Christian fellowship it's that coming together and encouraging one another and stimulating one another to love and to good deeds and, and ministering to one another and bearing one another's burdens and, and just being a part of the body together not just coming on Sunday morning when we fail to assemble ourselves together, as is the habit of some, we, we are want to fall into apostasy. Now, I had a talk with somebody this week, and we, we talked about that verse just briefly, and I want you to understand, that doesn't mean that you miss one Sunday. And all of a sudden, you're guilty of forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Now, I think you ought to be here. I'm a pastor. I think you ought to be here every time the church doors are open. I have to be. Why shouldn't you? But anyway, that's, that's not the point. That's not the point here. The point is, again, habitually, continuously, not fellowshipping with the body. I mean, you can even come to church and fail at this. You understand that? And he primarily talks about coming together, worshiping together, praying together, uh, hearing the word together and all these things. But, but, but also, you know, you can, you can forsake the assembling together if you come and just sit in the back and as soon as the amen is said, you shoot out the door and you avoid any contact or any fellowship with other believers. Forsaking the assembling of yourselves together for fellowship, for encouragement, for... for for stimulating one another to good deeds and to love, for understanding the promises together that Christ has given us, for ministering together the grace of God. You know, I, I remember when I was in college, and uh, it's kind of a simple illustration, but it's, it's pretty, pretty true. Uh, last night, Red and I went over with the youth and some of their families, and they had a had a bonfire. And uh, you know, it was rather warm around the fire. The blaze was going wild. We were roasting wieners and hot dogs and and, and roasting uh, 
marshmallows. And they were making s'mores. I don't eat that kind of stuff, but they were making those things. I just had the chocolate bars without the marshmallow and stuff. But, but you know, the flame was the flame was roaring, and it was strong. Now, if I if, if Arthur Crawford, it was his house. If, if he had taken something and, and removed one of those logs that were burning so brightly with all the other logs and kind of set it apart over here, it wouldn't take long for that log to diminish. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't feed off the other logs. It wouldn't it wouldn't be encouraged to burn on by the other logs because that's what happens in a, in a fire. The, the logs encourage one another to burn. That's what happens in a church. That's what happens in an assembly of believers, of true believers around the word of God. We encourage one another to burn for Christ. We encourage one another to be, a, 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 to be loving one another, to be ministering to one another, to be caring for one another. And when we fail to do that, when we separate ourselves, there becomes a real temptation to apostasy. Satan has a door. Satan has a chink in the armor by where he can tempt, he can lie, he can deceive and if you're not firmly in Christ if you are not in Christ Jesus if you just have a knowledge of it you will fall now as I said we all have struggles we all go through times where we deal with things and and, and but if Christ is in us we'll always have a Romans chapter 7 experience where the Spirit of God is convicting and we always return, repent and return to Him. Well, back to our text. It says, you know, even the law of Moses, if you turn your back on it, if you set it aside, you deserve punishment, judgment. How much more severe is the punishment going to be if you trample underfoot the Son of God? That is, if you, if you mock or insult the sacrifice he's made. Verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, it is a glory thing to be in the hands of the living God. Don't you see a difference here? It's, it's subtle, but it's true. It's a glorious thing to be in the hands of the living God. John chapter 10, uh, no one will be able to snatch them out of my hands. My Father and I are one, and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. I mean, they're together, they're one, they're, they're, they're perfect, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's a glorious thing, and a security thing to be in the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because you see, that indicates that you weren't there. And in judgment, you came in contact 
with the hands of the living God. In judgment, you fell into his presence, and, and judgment is horrible. I mean, you know, when the, when the scripture says that it is the beginning of wisdom, it is the beginning of knowledge to, to fear God, that's what the writer here is talking about. There ought to be a healthy fear in all of us. That we be obedient. I don't. I don't like all this fear stuff. I don't like all this this judgment stuff. I just want to. I just want a Jesus who's happy all the time, like he was when he drove the thieves out of the temple. That should have drawn a laugh from you. I just want a happy Jesus. I want a Joel Osteen Jesus that smiles all the time and has whiter teeth. Than anybody else? Pretty hair? Just makes you feel all good all over. But that's not the truth. And I want us to be cognizant of the truth of the living God. And the truth is, judgment will occur. We will die, there will be judgment. If you're in Christ, the scripture says you've been judged already. You've been justified. You've been, your, your sins have been propitiated. We looked at that word in depth. And judgment is a reality. And if you're in Christ, you've been judged already. If you're not in Christ, even though you might be in church, that's a terrible thing. Because only Christ secures. Only Christ redeems. Your knowledge doesn't do it. You say, well, what are you, are you trying to make us all doubt our salvation? No. I'm, I'm just telling you what the writer here says. I'm just wanting you to hear what the word of God says about this, that it ought to be something that we examine. It ought to be something that we think about. It ought to be something that we are continuously focusing on. Do I just have a hand-me-down religion from my parents? Do I just have a, 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 a churchianity that, that says, oh, if I go to church, then I'm saved and I'm all right? Or, or, or as long as I believe that Jesus is the Son of God with my head, that that's everything? Satan wants you to believe that. Satan wants you to have just a, a little inoculation of Christianity. Satan wants you to be deceived. Nothing bothers him about you going to church unless you're really serious about Christ. Now, nothing bothers him about you going to sit down and, and isolate yourselves in your little bubble with a group of other Christians. I mean, that's all right. I can, I can look spiritual and I can look reputable and I can look like I'm a good person. But I got to get out of here. Doesn't bother Satan. You're probably safer there for him than you would be if you're out in the world living like the devil and, and all of a sudden you come face to face with the gospel of Christ clearly. Truth is, I just want us to see that the writer says here that this matter of the Christian life is not to just be taken lightly. It's not to be said, oh, well, I've made a profession. Everything's all right. I've been baptized. Everything's all right. Now I'm fine. Because that's salvation by works. They say, and be sure 
that you've had, a li- had an encounter with the living Christ and he has changed your heart. He has made you new. Let's pray. Holy Father, we know that your word is truth. Your word is truth. And your word sanctifies us, makes us righteous, makes us holy by your declaration. Father, we know that it's it's not by our good works, it's not by our uh, efforts, it's not by our prayers, it's by your word. Lord, even as the choir sang this morning, the potter's hand, shape us, mold us, make us into what you've called us to be. As a church, as individual believers, as the body of Christ in Somerset, Kentucky, do your work. And guard us all from turning our back on Christ, even in backsliding, even in, even in a season that we might go into the wilderness. Lord, protect us from having to be brought back by your strong hand if we are yours. Father, I pray this day that your Holy Spirit will move in our hearts. Show us Christ in all his glory. And do your work in your way, by your spirit, and by your power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.